Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. So effectively, we're doing, you guys have been doing this series on church unity, and clearly, because of recent circumstances, this is an incredibly relevant conversation to have, because it just takes literally 60 seconds to jump on Facebook and to see that Christians are not united. And it can be discouraging, and it can be frustrating to see how the church across the globe, really, can be so divided over issues that are not worthy of our division, of of the division that it's causing. But I want to state on the outset here that I think there are a couple different angles we could look at this issue of unity. And and I know that you've already had a couple of different talks on this conversation of unity, but but today what I'm going to be highlighting is really this idea of how. How do we get to unity? And I'm going to admit to you right now that this talk that I'm about to give, this passage that I'm about to preach, is is one that I usually do with pastors. It comes from an angle of like encouraging pastors to, to do certain things, to think certain ways, to be certain kinds of leaders. And so I'm going to do my best to make this connect for those of us in the room that maybe aren't pastors or aren't thinking in that way. But I think there's two kinds of angles we can, we can look at this idea of unity. First is a, that unity is proclamational. It is positional. We are one in Christ. Just like I am the father of my four kids. I cannot divorce my children. You cannot divorce being a part of the church. You cannot divorce being a child of God. You are a child of God. If you are a child of God, if you've come to that place in your life where you have realized that you need a Savior, his name is Jesus, you've realized that your sin is in the way and that Jesus has paid the price for your sin and you have put your trust in Jesus. Best verse in the Bible, John 3.16, right? If you believe, you will not perish. If you believe, you cannot divorce The fact that you are a child of God. Positionally, we are united. So it's an interesting conversation that we would have about what does it look like for the church to be united when we already are united. Positionally, proclamationally, we are united. The other angle is this, practical unity. So you have proclamational or positional unity. We are one in Christ, but there is practical unity. We act like one in Christ. And this is what we're getting. This is the meat. This is, this is the heart of the conversation here. Why don't we act like we're one in Christ? Right? This is why it only takes two seconds to get on Facebook or Instagram and to see all the conflict amongst Christians and to see that, man, we just don't act like we're one in Christ, even though we are one in Christ. So that's the question we're going to dive into this morning. How do we get that kind of unity? How do we practically unite? How do we practically act like we're one in Christ? And so 
If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I know that we read uh, the first six verses. We're going to go ahead and read the 16 verses, the first 16 verses in this passage. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians 4, chapter 1 through 16. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about every wind of doctrine by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes, Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let's look at this. Verse 1, I therefore... Prisoner for the Lord. Paul begins this section with a therefore. And if you're, if, you're a, if you're a student of scripture, if you've studied the word, you've got to understand that whenever there's a therefore, it's because of something that was said before that. Based on what I just said, therefore, in light of what I just said, so let's, let's look at this. What, what did Paul just say? What, what, has, what has the author of this book, Ephesians, as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, what has he just told them? In chapters 1 through 3, there's six chapters. Now, you have to understand, if you don't know this, right, Paul didn't write with the chapters and the, and the verse numbers. Paul didn't say, church in Ephesus, chapter 1. Like, we, we sort of added that just for our own clarity, for our own organizational ability to read the word a little bit better. This is a letter. This is just like a long letter that he wrote to the church. And before the therefore, here's what he said. In chapter 1, I mean, so let me summarize it. He's unpacking the beauty of the gospel. Paul is unpacking the beauty of the gospel. In chapter 1, he talks about the spiritual blessings of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption through his blood. Literally, Jesus shed his blood on a cross. So that you could be purchased back. Jesus exchanged his life. He stood, he he, he hung, he died in your place. 
chapter 1. Chapter 2, grace through faith and oneness in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see in that verse where it says he has made us both one, positional, proclamational unity. Because of the beauty of the gospel, because of the redemption through his blood, you are one with Christ. We are one, church. You guys are Presbyterian, right? PCA? I serve at a Baptist church. Guess what? We are one. You baptize babies here, don't you? We don't baptize babies at our Baptist church. You sprinkle, we dunk. We are one, church. Not because of our peripheral doctrinal views, not because of our denominational allegiances, but because of who has redeemed us with his blood. We are one, church. Chapter 3, mystery of the gospel revealed. Chapter 3, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We are one. The beauty of the gospel is that we are one in Christ, not because of anything you or I have done. Simply because of what Christ has done. And still, he says to us in chapter 3, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far abundantly than all that we ask. How many of us wake up in the morning and know exactly what to ask of God every day? Because I don't. But I know that he promises to do far abundantly more than even what I'm able to ask. As I meet with pastors and church leaders, and I've been in a lot of different meetings with leaders in our cities where we want to know, like, what can we do to bring revival to South Florida? And then we, we spend a lot of time and energy and money planning and strategizing. And, and you, know what, you know what I often find is missing from those meetings and those conversations? Right here, what Paul says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. I find that often we make the mistake of tapping into our own power instead of the power that is at work within us because it is he who is able to do far abundantly more than we're even able to comprehend and to ask. Do I want revival in South Florida? Yeah, I do. But I'm going to say something I think pushes against the narrative that we often hear in the church. Unity is not the goal. Unity is not the goal. We will not get revival in South Florida if all we did was come up with better strategies to be united. Folks, the scriptures tell us we are united because of the redemption of Christ's blood. Positional unity. The, the problem is we don't always act united. So why is that? Well, because we still struggle with sin, right? Because we still have some growing up to do, right? 
Because there's still some sanctification left to be done in us, right? So Paul says, therefore, right? And we looked at, okay, what, what, what was he saying? He's saying, therefore, so that means in light of what I just said, which is the beauty of the gospel, in light of the beauty of the gospel, in light of the redemption through his blood, in light of the fact that Jesus is our peace, in light of the power at work within us to do far abundantly all that we can even imagine or ask, in light of all that, therefore, Paul's about to jump into the, what this is about, and we're going to look at this. And I just want to highlight, if you're taking notes, the first three chapters of Ephesians is the indicative. It's a description of what is true. And the next three chapters are the imperatives. It's directional. It's how to live true. So if you're studying the book of Ephesians, you can break it up into those two things. A description, what is true, and then the, the uh, imperatives, directional, how to live true. How to live as if these things are true. And so I really just have two points for my message as we look at these 16 verses. And it's this idea of walking in the gospel and building in the gospel. So Paul says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This idea is that idea of walking in the love of Jesus. Walking in the love of Jesus. Ephesians 1, 4 through 7 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Colossians 2, 6-7 through 7 says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here's my question for you folks. How did you receive Jesus? Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Ephesians says, as he chose us, Colossians tells us, just as you received Jesus, walk in him. How did you receive Jesus? When I was 28 years old, I was serving at a fairly large church in Miami as a youth pastor. All, all church planners, by the way, get their start in youth ministry, right? <laughs> the running joke amongst pastors and church planners. I did not set out to be a future pastor church planner. As a matter of fact, I didn't even want to be a pastor. My father is a pastor. I wanted to do anything else but be a pastor. But the Lord has his ways with us. And I was 28 years old. I was serving at a large church down in Miami. And I remember having this spiritual awakening in my life begin. And I began to read um, different pastors and authors. And one of those guys happened to be this guy named John Piper. You may or may not have heard of him. But he was incredibly helpful for me to understand the beauty of the gospel in a way that I'd never Fully seen. As a matter of fact, John and I uh, share a rich legacy 
uh, our families come from, my parents and his parents and, and many of the people that we know come from a movement, a gospel movement that existed here in the 70s through uh, a group of leaders that started a college called Florida Bible College. And because of this, many people came to know Jesus as their Savior, and lots of churches got planted. Matter of fact, a lot of the churches that exist today in South Florida came out of this, came out of this movement. A church that I grew up in called Southwest Community Church came out of this movement of the gospel. But as a 28-year-old youth pastor growing up in, who had grown up in a pastor's home, who was the product of this gospel movement in the 70s, I had still not fully grasped the totality and the beauty of the gospel. And so at that stage in my life, I began to read different Reformed authors, and John Piper being one of them, a Reformed Baptist guy, and I remember him teaching on this idea of how do we receive Jesus. And I'm just going to summarize what I remember him saying one time that helped me understand this concept of how did I receive Jesus. Imagine if you, a believer and another person, an unbeliever, arrive in heaven one day and meet St. Peter at the gates. And he asks you specifically, how is it that you have come to believe and be saved ultimately? You, looking over at the unbeliever, would not want to confess well, I'm morally and spiritually superior to this guy, smarter in my decision-making process, and have therefore arrived at the correct spiritual conclusion, therefore landing me here in heaven. This would be spiritual arrogance. The reason you are a believer, the reason you have received Jesus is because he has chosen you. Because he has chosen you. And so Paul says, in light of this, Walk, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Just as you have received Jesus Christ, walk in him. Walk in him. So he then goes on to verse 2 and encourages us to walk in love with one another. He starts with you individually and he says, I'm urging you. He goes, therefore, right? Therefore, based on the beauty of the gospel... I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Hey, it's not because you are so spiritually superior, but it's actually because you're spiritually inferior, and in your inferiority, he has chosen you. Now he says, then walk in love with one another. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, he's saying maintain the unity. What is he saying? Positionally. There is unity. Proclamationally, there is unity. Maintain it. It exists already. You cannot divorce the family of God. You're part of it. There is one body, one spirit. Proclamational unity. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Proclamational unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Positional unity. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Colossians 3, 14 and 15 says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We keep seeing this theme in scripture, love, love, love. And this very practical idea, Paul says, put on love, put on love. When you put on love, it is the glue that binds everything together in harmony. Verse 15 says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called 
in one body. Be thankful. Your calling to the gospel, your calling to believe in Jesus is not, let me, let me say this again so we're all listening, it is not an individual, only about you kind of thing. You were not only called to Jesus, you were called to a family. You were called to, to a people. At the brook, we like to say we exist to grow a people from all people passionate for God. You did not, I used to think that as a kid growing up. I don't know why, but I somehow got to this idea that when I, in 1987, October 1987, I was 13 years old and I, the gospel finally clicked for me that I really needed a Savior. I'm sure I prayed that prayer when I was four years old, as most preacher's kids do. But, but at 13, it was really real for me. But at that time, I thought it was only for me. It was me and Jesus. He was my best friend. It was just us walking down the road, me and Jesus. He's my homeboy. Jesus is my homeboy. I remember that was a fashionable T-shirt at one point. But it's not just Jesus and you. It's Jesus and you and the church, the family of God. It's not our job to make unity real or to force it in place. Unity already exists in God. Why? Because of his love for us. So the question we have to ask is, do we walk in the reality of his love and therefore experience unity? Do we walk in the reality of his love and therefore experience unity? And clearly the answer is, not always. Some, for some of us, it's no. It's never. I've never experienced that. For some of us, it's sometimes I've experienced that. And so in this, in this pursuit of unity for the church, earlier when I said unity is not the goal, I'm about to get here to under, help you understand what I mean by what is the goal, because do I want unity? Yes. But here's the thing. Unity already exists. The question is, do we walk in the reality of his love and therefore experience the reality of this unity? So Paul lays out for us the work of the church. Paul will now lay out for us, and we'll look into this in just a second, what do we have to do to walk in his love to experience unity? And what I would summarize it is by saying we have to mature disciples. We have to mature disciples. You can have a room full of baby Christians. You can have a room full of people who have just come to know Jesus. And the work of the church, the work that we are all invited to participate in is to disciple one another. To mature one another to encourage one another so let's let's look at this the process of maturity is building up encouraging teaching reminding so God makes a way for this to take place so this is my second point we we not only walk in the gospel but we build up in the gospel verse 7 through 13 verse 7 but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift I'm going to jump to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So Christ, Christ first builds you up. Christ gives you a gift. He gives us the gift of salvation, and he gives us the gift of purpose. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word.
one of, the, one, one of the ways I have come to understand the beauty of the gospel is not only that, that when, when Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could have relationship with God again, so that we could have heaven one day, so that we could be a part of this family, is, is not, only, not only do we get our debt paid for, right? You've heard, maybe you've heard this idea of that we owed a debt, but we could not pay, and he's the one that paid our debt, right? So not only was your debt paid, but there was an inheritance that was given to you. So two things happen at salvation, at conversion, if you will. Your debt is taken care of, and an inheritance is given to you. So if you own a home, if you own it outright and it's paid for, God bless you. That's amazing. But most people have a mortgage, on their home. That's a debt. So imagine someone knocks on your door. Hello, Mr. and Mrs., we're here to pay off your mortgage. You might slam the door shut and think, oh, this is a, this is a scam or this is a gimmick. But they convince you, no, 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 this is for real. We're here to pay off your mortgage. All you have to do is receive it. Praise God. I'd like that gift. I would like that debt. How many of you would like that debt paid for? That'd be amazing. But before they leave your house, right, you call the bank and the bank says, yes, it's been paid for. You, we're mailing you the title to your home. It's yours, free and clear. Except that you still have to pay taxes to the county or the city. <laughs> before they leave your home, they say to you, oh, one last thing. <clears throat> this is my American Express. What's the, what's the American Express that has like unlimited buying power? The black card? Yeah. See, I don't even know. <laughs> they hand you one, and it has your name on it. Powered by Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's connected to his bank account. And you have, you have an inheritance. Not only has your debt been paid, but you have been given an inheritance. So, so Christ... Builds you up first. He gives you the gift of salvation. He gives you the gift of purpose. And then we see here in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. For short, I'll say apest. We see apest here. And I want to clarify something. These are roles and functions of leadership. These are not offices of the church. So I'm not, I'm not here this morning saying some of you are meant to be the 13th apostle. This is not the idea of being one of the 12 apostles. This is an apostolic function of leadership, a prophetic function of leadership, an evangelistic function of leadership, a shepherding pastoral function of leadership, a teaching function of leadership. And these functions of leadership are not reserved for senior pastors. Sorry, John. These functions of leadership are not reserved for paid church staff. These functions of leadership are not reserved for seminary-trained graduates. These functions of leadership have been given to the body of Christ. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 13. Until we maintain to the unity of the faith... 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we build each other up. We build until alignment of the positional unity matches practical unity. You catch this? If unity is positionally already done, you are one in Christ, you are one as a church, then building each other up, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, is maturing one another so that our practical unity, acting as if we are one, matches the fact that we are one. And so we build to maturity and we build until we experience all of Jesus. You know what I've come to realize at 45 years of age, growing up in the church, is that I've only experienced a little bit of Jesus. And I, there are periods in my life where I am, if I'm honest, I'm not that hungry for more of Jesus. And there are periods in my life where I'm more hungry for Jesus. If we're honest, this is how our life kind of is. It ebbs and flows. There are times when we are, we are dying of thirst and starving for more of Jesus. And then there's times when I, I'm sad. I, I fill myself with the junk food of this world. Verse 14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Filling myself up with the junk food of this world. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Does anybody love me enough? Point me back to Jesus. Does anybody love you enough to point you back to Jesus? You know, Paul loved the Ephesian church. That's why he spent three chapters saying, this is the beauty of the gospel. Look at how amazing. Look at what God has done for you. Then he says, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He says, you are one in Christ. We are one as a church. Now, let's let our practical unity catch up to our positional unity. And he loved them enough to challenge them, to say, I don't want you to be immature children tossed back and forth. I want you to feed on the beauty of Jesus and be satisfied with all of Jesus. I want you to have the fullness of Christ, not just a little bit of Christ. See, the goal is not unity. The goal is Jesus. The goal is more of Jesus. And as we mature, as we grow, as we get more of Jesus, guess what? I care less about the things of this world. I care less about the politics of this world. I care less about the things of this life. And I care more about helping you get more of Jesus. This is what it looks like for us to be united. I wonder if anybody loves me enough to help me get more of Jesus. I wonder if I love you enough to help you get more of Jesus. As a parent of four kids, I'm going to confess. Um, my wife's right here. You can ask her. She'll tell you. <laughs> I really don't know what I'm doing sometimes. 
And I was a youth pastor, and I have teenagers, and they're driving me crazy. I love you, girls. My, girl, my two of my teenagers are here. However, all I want for them is for them to grow and mature. And we joke as parents sometimes that we want them to grow and mature. Why? So they can leave. <laughs> but if we're good parents, what we really want for them in their maturity and growth is to experience all the benefits that life has to offer them. Like we want them to experience the full, like there's a phrase that we use at the brook called human flourishing. I want human flourishing for my kids, but sometimes I am struggling to experience human flourishing for myself. And then I look at my kids and the choices they make sometimes, and I go, ah, but I just want human flourishing for you. And then I'm like, ah, but I'm such a hypocrite because I don't even have human flourishing for myself. The idea of maturity and the idea is literally this, the idea of wholeness and completeness. As a parent, I want wholeness and completeness for my kids. I want it for the people that I love. And the most loving thing we can do is to fight for that. The most loving thing we can do is to pursue wholeness and completeness for those that, people that we love. Both individually and corporately as the church, the fullest expression of our wholeness and our completeness. Listen to this. Listen to this. The fullest expression of our wholeness and our completeness, church, both individually and corporately, is found in Christ. It's found in Jesus. So here, here's the title of my message today was simply this. Unity is the fruit of maturity. Unity is the fruit of maturity. And the purpose of maturity is love. The purpose of maturity is love. If we really wanted unity, then fight to help each other get more of Jesus. Because Jesus is the goal, not unity. Unity exists. Positionally, we're one. You might walk up to me after service and go, Pastor, that was the stupidest sermon I've ever heard in my life. And I might never talk to you again this side of heaven. But in heaven, guess what? <laughs> we're going to be united. <laughs> You and I, we are one in Christ, whether you think so or not. My kids could get mad at me one day. Guess what? I can't divorce being their father. I'm their father. But what we need, where we should be heading, is helping each other get more of Jesus. Pastor John, can I, can I threaten the existence of the local church for a second. I, I love doing this, and, and, and this might be where you say, that's the stupidest sermon you've ever, I've ever heard. Do you realize the, these titles that we give pastors in the church, it doesn't even really exist in the Bible. This title of senior pastor, youth pastor, children's pastor, worship pastor, that does not exist in the Bible. Now, here's what I will, I will say, just to clarify. The office of elder exists in the Bible. So Pastor John... He's an elder of the church. That's his office. You have deacons here? Okay, we'll have deacons. So, so deacon is an office. But apest, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. This is a function of leadership that God has gifted to the church. I wonder if there's anybody who loves the church enough to point everyone back to Jesus. Because when we grow up, 
as we grow up, as we fall more in love with Jesus, as we experience more of the fullness of Jesus, guess what will happen? Our practical unity will look a whole lot like our positional unity. You know, and, and I'm going to end with this. Jesus taught us, love your enemies. That always baffled me growing up. Love your enemies? You know why it baffled me? Because I was that kid in middle school and high school who used to get picked on and sucker punched. And, you know, I didn't really know how to fight as a middle schooler or high schooler. And I really don't know how to fight as an adult. But, you know. Love your enemies. Until I realized at 28 years old, having a new experience of the fullness of Jesus, I understood the gospel more deeply. But this is what Jesus did. Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus loved his enemies. This is what sin does. Sin separates us. Sin makes us an enemy of God. And yet, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And, and then, and then so, so that seems like pretty clear, right? Because, okay, so we're enemies, and then Christ dies for us, and then he calls us as Christians to love our enemies, right? And so we think that's like we're supposed to love the pagans and the Gentiles and the, you know, those people over there. But yet what we do is we have enemies, we have frenemies. We have people within our family, within our church that are our enemies. And this is why there isn't alignment with our practical unity and our positional unity. Because we don't know how to love our enemies. And we don't know how to love our enemies because we don't really get the gospel like we say we do, like we, like we want to. And this is why we need more Jesus, because how did you receive Jesus? Was it because of your spiritual superiority? No. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. So who gets the kingdom? Those of us that admit we have nothing to offer, that we're bankrupt. So I come to you this morning. Yeah, I'm the guy who's preaching the message. But I come to you this morning confessing to you. I'm, I'm spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. And I wonder if there's anyone who loves me enough to point me back to Jesus. And I wonder if I love anyone enough to point them back to Jesus. And when we do this, church, when we do this, we will experience the fruit of unity. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcasts. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.